But I'm grateful to see you all here again this morning. It's such a blessing to be together. And how many of you have been blessed through the study of the Bible that we've gone through so far? You know, many simple things that we've looked at through Scripture that we see the clarity of who Jesus is, right? We're looking at the Unlock Revelation series, and we truly see that knowing and understanding Revelation truly helps us to understand the revelation of Jesus Christ more clearly, right? We see Jesus in all of the things that we've studied, and as we're able to see Jesus more clearly, our hearts are drawn to Him. Now, many of you have heard some things that have been new to you, right? We're all learning together as we're coming together through the Bible and studying what it is that God tells us is important for today. Now, it would be easy for anyone to come here and just say, well, I know everything about the Bible already, and I really don't need to learn anything. How many of you think that you would be in a position to be blessed if we had that type of attitude? No, we need to be open to whatever God says and learning through His Word, and as He shows us clearly through Scripture what things are, we say, Lord, if this is what the Bible says, if this is what's important to you, then by God's grace, I want it to be important to my life as well, right? You know, there's many things that we've, we've talked about and other things that we're going to be talking about this morning that we're going to understand might be a little bit different than what we've seen before, but as we see the truth about these things, we're going to really see the comfort and the love of God more fully manifest. Now, this morning we're looking at the topic, the mystery of death, understanding death's mystery and all of the things that surround it. We realize that we live in a world that's surrounded by confusion on this topic, and we'll discuss that in, in detail in a moment. But we also understand that as the last several nights, we've looked at things in which the, that Satan is trying to confuse in the Bible. Now, we've seen that Satan was trying to confuse what day that we spend with God. We see that Satan was kind of trying to confuse when the judgment would take place, but we see that God is a fair God who makes things very clear and reveals it to us. And tonight we're going to see that God makes it very clear what happens when we die so we don't have to have confusion and paranoia about this topic, but that we'll realize that God is a fair and just God. But before we begin, what do we need to do? We need to pray together and ask for the Lord to be with us. So why don't we bow our heads and ask the Lord's blessing. Father in heaven, we're just so thankful for the blessing of this beautiful morning that you've given us to worship you. And Lord, what a privilege it is to open the Bible together to see a clearer revelation of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that's truly our desire. Lord, would you just help us to understand your goodness and your character. Lord, it's because Jesus died and washed us from our sins in His own blood that we're here this morning. And Father, as we hear about the truths of your Word, we pray that you would give us wisdom and insight to see it clearly from Scripture. Lord, we want to lay down our preconceived ideas and just allow you to inform us through your Word what your truth is. Father, guide us, direct us, and send us your Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now many of us, as we heard about in the health talk already, have been touched by the issue of death. Would you agree? Everyone here has known someone or they've lost someone that they love. And death isn't an easy thing to go through. I was telling you last week, I had the opportunity of of officiating a funeral, and you see the loss and the mourning and the grief of all of the people who lose the one that they love so much. And the main question on everyone's mind is, is God fair, which we looked at at night number three, and what is going to happen to my loved one who died? Well, if you were to ask that question today, you might get a, a multitude of different answers depending what circles you're in. 
what really happens at death has become a controverted topic, and we realize that many people don't have the answers to this question. We're all looking to supply answers, but the question is, what does the Bible really teach? You know, some of us think that when you die, immediately at death, you either go to heaven or you go to hell. And this morning, we're going to look at, is that what the Bible teaches? That when someone dies, immediately upon death, their soul goes to heaven or goes to hell. Now, there's other people who say, well, you don't go to heaven or hell immediately. Well, you might. But there's also a third option, and that third option is known as what? Purgatory. In other words, if you weren't good enough, maybe you couldn't get into heaven yet, but you kind of go to purgatory first. It's like a waiting room for heaven. Now, it's not a comfortable, air-conditioned waiting room. But it's kind of, you know, you're, you're tortured a little bit, and there, there's some inconvenience, but once you can finally get it straightened out, then you go on into heaven. Now, if you really don't get it straightened out, I don't know if they open the bottom door and you go into hell or how that works, but there's confusion about what takes place. Now, to add to this confusion, I can confess that many pastors don't make it very easy for people to understand what happens when you die. Now, how many of you have been to a funeral recently? Anyone in the last year been to a funeral? Now, we realize that when you go to a funeral, there's usually two parts of the service. There's the part of the service that happens in the funeral home or the church or wherever it might be, and then there's the graveside service. Now, what's, what's typical and what you typically hear from the preacher in the funeral home or the church when he's talking about the loved one is he says that there's this, this loved one is in heaven with Jesus enjoying the realms of glory or something of that nature, right? You've heard those words in the funerals that you've... Now, then you get to the graveside service, and at the graveside service, the officiating minister will say, and this person is going to be resting in the grave awaiting the resurrection of Jesus. Now, how many of you have ever heard those two different things and wondered, well, which one is it? Is the person in heaven, or are they in the grave awaiting the resurrection of Jesus? Which one could it be? Now, we realize that these aren't the only issues that confuse what really happens when you die, but if you looked into Eastern religion or some other influences that come into the world today, some people might believe that before you were sitting in the chair here today that you used to be a fly or an ant or a cow. And then through the process of reincarnation and when you got everything's kind of figured out, you, you entered into a higher life force that allowed you to have another opportunity at life, and each time you keep kind of upgrading your body. So the question for, or the answer of death to them would be, well, when you die, you just come into an alternate form of life. Well, we realize that Hollywood has a lot to say about what happens when you die. It's hard to look at movie titles or anything like that where you don't see them talking about death. Notice what they say. The, the, the caption line here is, the dead are alive. Now, that seems kind of oxymoronic, but you realize that Hollywood is filled with these things. Also, the, the series called The Medium, which was out, looking at talking and communicating with the dead and ghost whisperers and all of these other shows, and there's so much question going on, or at least should be going on in our minds, what really happens when you die? Because can all of these theories be true at the same time? Well, it's impossible. If God is God and he has truth, then it's impossible for you to be dead in the grave and also in heaven. It's impossible for you to be dead and also reincarnated. It's also impossible for you to ever die if you're still alive and you never experience death. And if you really are dead, then how can you communicate with the dead after they've passed away? These are all questions that we need to understand. And we realize that it's on the rise. Books on near-death experiences have catapulted into the bestsellers list. 
You know, many of you can walk into a bookstore. I was in the airport not too long ago and walked into the bookstore, and there was a book, I think it's called, Is Heaven for Real? Has anyone seen that book? talks about a young child who had gone to heaven for a few minutes and came back. And you see all of these experiences of people talking about going into heaven or out-of-body experiences, and the question is, with all of this confusion, does God have an answer for us? Because if God doesn't have an answer, we're just going to have a lot of uncertainty. But notice that Scripture does give us an answer. Not only is there a question about, do you really die? Is there reincarnation? Some people, my, my family is in New Mexico, which is a large Native American population there. And there's a large amount of people there who believe that when you're dead, what happens next? Well, you're, you're just in the grave. That's it. There's nothing else to lie. But what we're going to look at this evening is that Jesus has the answers to our questions. How many of you are thankful for that? You know, as Christians, we have the privilege of having an all-knowing God who's able to tell us the end from the beginning. In other words, we have an unfair advantage over the rest of the world. God tells us that if you have a question, a main problem of life and a question of life, that He has the answers to those questions. And this evening, or this morning, I'm sorry, we're going to be looking, is death the end? What happens after death? Understanding death's mystery. Now what's very clear is that we've been understanding that Revelation has many keys that help us to be clear on what the Bible says about given topics. And this evening, it's not going to be, this morning, it's not going to be any different. But notice what Revelation chapter 1, verse 18 says. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, who is it that has the answer to the question of death? Talking about Jesus, Jesus himself self speaking, it says, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of what? Of death. You see, Jesus is the most well-informed person on the subject of death. He knows what it's like to be alive. He knows what it's like to die. And He knows what it's like to come back from the grave. And then He continues on and He says, I am the one who has the keys to death. Now, if you're looking to be able to drive your parents' vehicle, you're looking for the parent who has the key, right? And this is the one that we're looking for. In understanding death, we're realizing that Jesus is the one who holds the key to our understanding. Jesus is the one who informs our ideas about what it means or what happens when we die. Then the question is, if Jesus helps us and informs our understanding of what happens when we die, then how did Jesus refer to death? Isn't that a good question? If Jesus has the answers, then how does Jesus treat the subject? Well, notice with me, Jesus discusses the issue of death in a very extensive way in John chapter 11. And this one we will not find on the screen. We want to be in our Bibles this morning. I want you to see this for yourself. And if you don't have a Bible but you need a Bible, just go ahead and raise your hand and we have some Bibles in the back that we can bring to you. Anyone need a Bible? All right, John chapter 11 is where we're going to be going this morning, looking at what does Jesus, or how does Jesus, refer to death? In other words, I could give you my own theory. You could get the theory from your, your favorite Bible teacher, and they might contradict. But what about what does Jesus have to say about the issue of death? John chapter 11, 
and beginning in verse 11. Now, to get a little bit of background on this, Jesus is there with his disciples, and he receives a message that one of his good friend's brothers is sick and almost ready to die, and that friend's name was Lazarus, right? You're familiar with this story. Now, Jesus gets a message, and he, he loves Lazarus. He loves Mary and Martha, and they're very good friends of his. And we see that Jesus is concerned and wants to go help them, but Jesus seems to be taking a little bit of time to get there, right? Now, notice what's taking place in this story. Now, Jesus, actually, we're going to go ahead and begin in verse 11. Beginning in verse 11, John chapter 11, Jesus is talking to the disciples, and in verse 11, he says this, These things he said to them, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus does what? Sleeps. But I go that I may wake him up. Now Jesus says, hey, he's sleeping, but I'm going to go that I can wake him up. Now notice the disciples' response to this in verse 12. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will what? Get well. Now we've had several people get sick in the last few days, including my wife and myself. And when you get sick, are you supposed to sleep more or less? Well, more, right? You need a little bit of rest, and ever, after you get a little bit of rest, and you just take it easy for some time, everything will work out okay, right? And Jesus, in talking about Lazarus, he says to the disciples, hey, Lazarus is sleeping. And the disciples are like, well, yeah, he should be. You know, he's trying to get better, but Jesus is trying to tell them something that they're not understanding. Skip down to verse 13. Notice what it says. However, Jesus spoke of his what? Death. But they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Now, you can understand the clear confusion, right? Jesus refers to death as a sleep, and the disciples think that he's taking a nap. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm speaking about death. And notice Jesus gets really clear. John chapter 11 and verse 14. Then Jesus said to them plainly, and what did Jesus say? Lazarus is dead. Now, this is interesting. Jesus is talking to his disciples about what happens when they die, right? Because one of their friends is in the experience where Lazarus experiences death. Now, when Jesus talks about death, Jesus says that Lazarus isn't dead necessarily floating off in some, some interesting place, but Lazarus is simply sleeping. Now, this is interesting. This might be a little bit different than what we hear in common Christian circles, that you sleep in the grave until Jesus comes back. Now, notice what takes place. Jesus continues on this story, and, and we see that Jesus finally comes to the part where he gets to Lazarus, right, and the disciples are there with him. And had Lazarus already died when Jesus went? Yes, he'd been dead for several days. And as Jesus comes there, he gets to the tomb, and, and Lazarus is in the tomb, and, and notice the conversation that happens here. John chapter 11 and verse 43. John chapter 11 and verse 43. Now, Jesus is here and he's talking to the people about what is going to take place. And actually, let's skip up to verse 39 just so we can see what's happening. Verse 39, Jesus said, Take away the stone. Talking about the stone that was covering the grave of Lazarus. But Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench for he has been what? Dead for four days. Now this is interesting. 
Jesus is saying, hey, take away the stone. And she says, no, 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 no. Don't, don't mess with that, right? He's going to stink, right? Decaying flesh because he's been in there for several days. But notice what Jesus does. He continues on and, and he calls for the stone to be removed. And notice verse 43. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, what? Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave cloths, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And so Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Now, let's just come to this. Jesus tells us that death is like a sleep. In other words, it's not, a, it's not a trip that you go and you go to heaven or you go to hell immediately, but you're resting in the grave. Now, some of you are saying this is, this is different than what I've heard, but just go along with this understanding, and we're going to see if it's clear in the Bible or not. But if Lazarus truly went to heaven at death, like many people believe, do you think it would be a blessing for Jesus to rake, wake him from that death of sleep and bring him from the realms of glory back down to this earth to be filled with sin. You realize Jesus and Lazarus were close friends. And if Jesus died in immediate, or if Lazarus died and immediately at death, he goes to heaven. Now, four days or many days, Lazarus has already been enjoying the bliss of heaven, if this is the common understanding. And he's been walking around with the angels. He's been spending time with Jesus. He's been experiencing the life without sickness or death or suffering. And all of the sudden, Four days after being there, Lazarus hears this voice that says, Lazarus, come forth. Now, how many of you would be greatly disappointed that you had a friend like Jesus at that point who could call you back from the dead? Now, this isn't what we see taking place, right? You never see Lazarus coming back and saying, man, you guys should have seen what it was like up there. And notice when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, he doesn't say, Lazarus, come down, right? He doesn't say, come down from heaven, but Lazarus, come what? Fourth, In other words, come out. You were there, and so just come out. Now, this is very interesting because this isn't what we notice in the common Christian world today. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is it ever possible that our understandings of things, even in the, uh, the world that we live in, can be wrong sometimes? Now, there was a common belief. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Africa or any countries where malaria was very prevalent. But when I went to Africa for the first time, we had to be taking a malaria prophylaxin, which is just this thing to keep me from catching malaria, right? Now, malaria is known to be transmitted primarily in one way, but did you know that actually in the 1800s, that people thought the main cause of malaria was because you were walking outside in the evening when it was cool? In other words, when it's kind of cool outside and you go for a walk in the evening, the doctor would say, if you want to stay away from malaria, don't go on those cool evening walks. Now, we know today that how is malaria transmitted primarily? Mosquitoes, right? It doesn't have anything to do with that cool air. But the understanding of that time said that if you were going to avoid malaria, you had to stay away from the cool air. But was that a correct understanding? No, well-meaning, well-intentioned, trying to study, know what was true, but it was not a correct understanding of what was taking place. Now, it's also, it was also said that if you had lung issues or emphysema or anything like that, you know how you used to cure your lung issues? Smoke a little bit. Now, now we have things on packs of cigarettes that say, will cause cancer, right? Or may cause cancer. I don't, I don't know exactly. I haven't looked at a pack in a while. But we realize that there's common misunderstandings. 
Now, notice Jesus is not the only one who refers to death as a sleep, but notice what David says in Psalm 13. We're going to be looking through the Psalms quite a bit today. Psalm 13 and verse 3, and make sure to look this up in your own Bible, knowing that the Word of God is true. It says, Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I do what? Lest I sleep the sleep of death. In other words, when David is talking about death, he doesn't use different language than what Jesus himself used. But Jesus says, hey, death is like a sleep. And David, when talking about death, says death is like a sleep. And notice that they're not the only ones, but over 50 times in the Bible, various Bible writers use the term that death is like a sleep. In other words, when you die, you're waiting in the grave, waiting for the resurrection of Jesus Christ to take place to be reunited with him. Now, this is new, but we're going to be saying, is this true from the Bible? In other words, I don't want to just believe something because I've always believed it, but I want to believe what the Bible truly says about something. And if Jesus says that death is like a sleep, if David says that death is like a sleep, if over 50 times all throughout the Old and New Testament, the Bible writers say death is like a sleep, then I might need to change my view in believing that death is like a sleep. How much do you understand in death? Well, that's the next question that we're looking at, is is, are, is there any consciousness that takes place after death or in death? In other words, if death is like a sleep, maybe the Bible writer uses that, but, but I don't know if that really means that they don't know anything. Maybe there's still a conscious state that we're in when we die. Well, we want to do justice to what the Bible says and not twist Scripture, so why don't we go ahead and look at Psalm 146. I told you that Psalms has a lot to say about this. Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4. Now, you'll need to turn in your Bibles there. Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4. And notice how David once again describes what's going to be going on after death. Now, many of us, as we're turning there, page, Psalm 146, verse 3 How many of you have plans of what you're planning on doing in heaven when you get there? Now, I don't know about you, but I've had multiple dreams about once I get to heaven, I want to fly. Has anyone else ever had a desire to fly? Not inside of an airplane, but I mean like outside, right? Just taking off and flying around, going wherever, and just being free to do that, right? We have plans for when we get to heaven. But notice notice what Psalms 146 verse 3 says. It says, Do not put your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in who there is what? No help. But notice verse 4. Why is it that there's no help in the Son of Man? Because His Spirit departs, and He returns to His earth. In that very day, His what? His plans perish. Now this is Psalm 146, verse 3 and 4. And David is telling us here that at death there's two things that happen. The spirit departs, which many people believe is a spirit that's very intelligent and has understanding. In other words, it's this living being of who they truly are, and that departs and goes to God. Now, we're going to see that that's a misunderstanding of what the spirit is. And we'll look at this a little bit more, but the word spirit there is just the exact word that means breath. In other words, his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and notice what it says. In that very day, his plans perish. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you don't have plans before you get to heaven. But once you get to heaven, I'm sure you're going to have some things you want to do. 
But David is saying, after death, you have no more plans. In other words, you don't continue on in just this conscious state, but consciousness ceases because there's no more understanding in the grave. Now you might say, well, is there anywhere else in the Bible that gives us clear understanding of this? Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And we have Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. So Ecclesiastes chapter 9, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5 and 6. Trying to understand, is there consciousness after death? In other words, do we die in this world, but we continue on living in another world? What does the Bible say about this? Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. Now notice here, Ecclesiastes is written by what the Bible tells us is the world's smartest man, Solomon. And notice what he says about death. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 5. He starts out and he says, For the living know that they shall what? Die. Now how many of us understand that that's a reality? Unless Jesus comes first, we're going to die. Right? That's the end of all, end of all men. That the living know that they will die, but the dead know how much? What does the Bible say? I'm not making this up. The living know that they shall die, but the dead know nothing. Now this is interesting. Notice how it continues on. And their love, their hatred, their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything that is done under the sun. Now this is very fascinating. The Bible tells us that the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Now let's just suppose for a moment that the common understanding of when you die, you go to heaven is is true. But if you die and you go to heaven, and the Bible tells us that after you die, that the dead know how much? Nothing. Does that mean that there's just a bunch of brain-dead people walking around heaven? In other words, is there just a bunch of people in heaven who just have, have some sort of form, but they don't really know anything? And is that what Ecclesiastes is talking about? He says that the living know they'll die, but the dead know nothing. There's no understanding. And notice what it continues on to say. It says, for their love. How many of you think when you get to heaven, you're going to love? At least Jesus, right? You're going to realize that Jesus is the only reason why you are in heaven today. And if you're in heaven and you don't have a love for Jesus, do you think you ended up in the right place? No. Right? We realize that only those who love Jesus, and as we get there, we're going to be casting our crowns at Jesus' feet because of His mercy in which He's given to us and allowing us to be in the realms of glory. But the Bible writer tells us that in death, there is no more knowledge, the dead know nothing, and also that their love and all their other emotions have perished. And it tells us that they will never more have a share in anything done under the sun. In other words, when the dead die, are they coming back? Are they coming back to walk around on this world and haunt the houses that they used to live in? Well, the Bible tells us that they will never more have a share in anything done under the sun, right? Now, notice in that same train of thought what Job says. Job chapter 7. Job chapter 7. In the Old Testament, Esther, Job, Psalms. So if you get to Psalms, turn back one book. Job chapter 7, looking at what is it like once we die? Is there consciousness in the grave? Job chapter 7 and verse 9. 
Job chapter 7 and verse 9, and we're going to realize that this understanding of what happens when you die is crucial to our understanding of what happens in the last days. It's also crucial to our understanding and our peace in this life right now. Job chapter 7 and verse 9. Are we there? Job chapter 7 and verse 9. Notice what it says. It says, as the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down into the grave does what? does not come up. Now notice verse 10. Now obviously this is not talking about not coming up in the resurrection. The Bible is clear about that. But he doesn't come up on his own, right? Now notice verse 10. He shall never return to his what? His house. Nor shall his place know him anymore. Now isn't this interesting? The Bible says that you're not going to have a place in anything that's done under the sun anymore. And also here in Job, we see that the the man who dies doesn't return to his house anymore. Now, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have ever heard of a haunted house? Halloween time, right? You drive by and it's a haunted house and all those things. Well, the question is, is if it's not haunted by the person who used to live there, then what is it? What is this that's going on? Well, some of it could just be there's creaking in the house and there's, there's, there's sounds and noises that are naturally made and people just get spooked out about that, right, and talk it up. I remember my brother and I, we were in an abandoned hospital, and this is not a, a joyful story to share, but my aunt was a nurse and they had closed off several wings of the hospital. And when we walked in, we wanted to go into the abandoned wings, right, and see what was really there. And so as we're wandering through this hospital, my brother are looking at, and I are looking at the, the different rooms there that are fully stocked, and it really looks like a ghost town. In other words, like the people were in the middle of operations, and it almost looks like they just left stuff where it used to be. Now, we were walking through there, my brother, being a good older brother like he is, wanted to try to scare me a little bit, right? And he said, hey, there's probably dead people in this place. And so we start, you know, we're going through each room, and we're, we're trying to freak each other out, and, and he says, you know, there's just going to be crazy things that are happening around here. And so he's, he's trying to scare me, and finally we get to the point where we're walking past an elevator, and my brother says, you know what's going to happen? Someone's going to open that elevator, and there's going to be a dead person hanging there. And immediately at that time, we hear, ding. Now, what do you think my brother and I did? Here's my brother talking up all this stuff, and okay, there's going to be a dead... Now, my brother, as heroic as he is, pushed me back and took off and ran and jumped over the nurse's counter. Now, here I am running like a fugitive from this hanging dead person in the elevator, right? Because it was just this ding. And as I look back, in horror, it was my mother and my aunt just coming to tell us that it's time to go. Now, why is it that there's so much of this horror going on? Really, you don't need somewhere to be possessed in order to scare you, right? You just need a good tour guide. But why is it that we're going to these places looking to be scared and playing with these things? You know how the Bible describes those who worship the dead and those who are talking and communicating with those who are dead? They say that we're actually not talking to dead people, but that we're talking to demons, In other words, if the house is haunted, if it doesn't happen to just be naturally creaky and kind of spooky with a good tour guide, what could be happening is that it actually might be the residence of some of Satan's demons. Now, how many of you, if you're driving down the road and you see a placard that says Satan's house to the right, want to say, oh yeah, I want to stop in for a quick visit, right? No, we need to avoid those things because why are we going to be coming onto Satan's ground? 
Now, this is the same idea with Halloween that we have. It's the day of all saints where the dead spirits are supposed to be roaming around. And why is it that we play with those things when God tells us that it's not, it's not just fun and games, but we realize that when we're playing with the dead, we're not just playing with some interesting theory, but really it could be the spirit of Satan that's bringing confusion on those subjects. Notice the Bible doesn't say that there's any consciousness in death. It says actually the contrary. That you know nothing. That you, you can't love and you can't praise God. And, and notice that's what we're going to look at right now. If you're in heaven, do you think you would be thankful to be there? How many of you would be thankful to be in heaven? Now, if you don't raise your hand, I'm, I'm just going to guess you wouldn't raise your hand for anything. But I'm going to guess that you would be thankful to be in heaven, right? Psalm chapter 115. Look at this last one on this question. Is there consciousness in death? We want to give the Bible a clear understanding and not just force our own opinions on what Scripture says. Notice what Psalm 115, verse 17 says. Psalm 115, verse 17. Notice what the psalmist writes. In understanding, is there consciousness in the grave? Psalm chapter 115 and verse 17. Notice what he says. It says, the dead do not do what? Praise the Lord. Nor any who go down into what? Silence. You see, David, when he's describing the experience of death, he says when you die, there's not all this stuff happening. You're just there, resting in the grave. It's like a sleep. In other words, it's consistent with what we've seen all throughout Scripture. And it's not a sleep in which you're conscious and and able to go around and do all of these different things and praise the Lord and live in an alternate form of body in heaven. But it's truly that you're resting, that there's silence. You're not praising the Lord. And if you were in heaven, do you think you would be praising the Lord if you were in heaven right after death? Absolutely. But David says that's not the experience that we find in Scripture. The dead do not praise the Lord. Now, many people think that this is kind of an uncomfortable topic to talk about because they say, you know, I've lost a loved one who I cared about a lot. Now, many of us, and we've all, by a show of hands, have lost loved ones. And many times when we see that you lose a loved one, how do you often comfort each other with the idea of losing that one? Well, that loved one is up in heaven experiencing the bliss and joy of Jesus, and so don't worry. You know, they're not suffering anymore. No, praise the Lord. Is it true they're not suffering anymore? Absolutely. Can you suffer in sleep? Well, maybe if you have someone torturing you, but that's not what's taking place, right? There's rest is what Jesus talks about. Rest in the grave. And so is it possible that the idea of having a loved one in heaven, should that really bring us comfort? Now, a lot of people say, I don't, I don't want to talk about this, but just give it a moment of honest thought, okay? If you have a loved one in heaven, and that loved one, we're praising the Lord that they're not experiencing the pain of this world anymore. And you say, I'm so thankful that our, I, my loved mother is up in heaven, able to look down and watch everything here, and she loves us and sees what's going on. Now, have you ever realized that what goes on on this earth is not always happy? You've noticed that, right? You've read the newspaper before. That not everything that happens down here is happy. And now can you imagine that one day, that mother who has gone up into heaven and is sitting there looking down on her children, 
comes and sees her children getting out of school, and as they're running across the street, a car comes and hits her son. Now, I want to ask you, should that give you comfort that your mother who has passed is able to be in heaven seeing the suffering that's taking place on this world? Now, notice there's another thought. What if there's a father who died? And the father, when he, he, he dies, he, he knows that his son's been good, but his son gets shipped off to the military. And I think we had a picture just here. And as his son gets shipped off to the military, he realizes and he watches the heroic acts of his son, but then he sees his son blown up. Is being in heaven, seeing everything happening on this world, really bringing us comfort knowing that our loved ones can do that? You also have the one who their, their children were raised right, but the parents died at a young age, and they see their children now going out in the streets, using drugs, selling these things. And how can the parents enjoy the bliss of heaven while watching the suffering taking place on this earth? You would have to be pretty twisted to be able to understand this. You know, heaven, God wants it to be an enjoyable experience. He doesn't want it to be where we're feeling the pains of earth anymore. But God wants it to be that when we get to heaven, we don't see any more suffering taking place. And we're going to notice in the next couple nights how God plans to do that through the millennium, through the state of the message of hell and the good news that we find in that. That God really desires for us to have joy in heaven, not looking down on a suffering world. Now then you ask, well, how are we supposed to comfort each other though when we lose someone that we love? Have you ever wondered that question then? Well, if it we're not supposed to comfort each other by saying, well, they're up in heaven enjoying the realms of glory, looking down on us, what does the Bible say that we should do to comfort each other? Notice 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, and we'll look at it in, as a whole in a moment. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, tells us how it is that we're supposed to comfort one another. And for those of you who don't have your Bibles or aren't as quick, 1 Thessalonians is in the T section, the T section in Scripture, so 1 and 2 Corinthians, and then you keep going on, you get past some of the letters, and you get to the T section there. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, God tells these people who are grieving at the loss of loved ones how they're supposed to comfort each other. And notice he doesn't say comfort each other by telling others that your loved ones are in heaven. But notice what he says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 18. Now we're going to read this in part, and we'll go ahead and read it again in a moment, and we'll take some more time looking at it when we read there. Start in verse 16, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16. It says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a what? With a shout. And with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will do what? Rise first. Now I want to ask you a question. What is this that Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians? It's obviously the resurrection of the dead, right? The dead in Christ will rise first. Now notice he continues on in verse 17. It says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now notice what does Paul go on to say in those next couple words. Therefore, right? Therefore, comfort one another with what? These words. How is it that we can have comfort in death? 
Well, we realize that our, our loved ones are simply sleeping in the grave, awaiting the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ so that they can experience the realms of glory not before us, but with us. Isn't that what the Bible says? That they will be rised and then we will meet them in the air. We will all be caught up with the Lord together to be able to go and experience heaven at once. Now, God says that if you want to comfort one another, these are the words in which you shall do it. Now, there's another question that we're going to be looking at in, in relation to this subject of the mystery of death. And the question is, doesn't the Bible teach that we have immortal souls? How many of you have ever heard that term before, immortal soul? Doesn't the Bible ever teach that we have an immortal soul? Now, let me put it a different way, using a different word. Doesn't the Bible teach that our soul never dies? That's what immortal means, right? Not subject to death. So does the Bible truly teach that it's impossible to kill the soul? Now, notice, we're going to give the Bible a fair chance to answer this question. And many times when we've have had questions in this seminar about what God really meant, we've gone back to the book of Genesis, right? We realize that the book of Genesis tells us God's true intent. He never desired death for His people, right? God isn't the one who instituted death, but it was God who allowed death to take place as a result of sin. And we saw that in Genesis in night number three. But notice Genesis also talks about what it is that comprises the very essence of being a human. What it is that God uses as parts to make us in his image. And notice the language here. We're going to look at a couple passages. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. I would encourage you to look at it in your own Bible or go ahead and write it down to reference when you get home. But it is up on the screen this time. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Now, this is a beautiful passage of Scripture. And it says, And the Lord God did what? Formed man from the dust of the ground. Now, this is beautiful in and of itself. We could stop and have a sermon on this, that God is a personal God who formed man of the dust of the ground, right? God is willing to be close to us and He longs to be close to us. But God takes the dust of the ground and He does what? And He breathes into His nostrils the what? The breath of life. So in other words, we have two components so far. Dust of the ground plus breath of life. And what do we have? And man became a what? A living soul. Now, if you have dust of the earth and the breath of God equals a living soul, does that mean that we have a living soul or we are a living soul? We are a living soul, right? If you become something, did you have it before? No. You see, God says you have the dust of the ground, you have the breath of life, and when the breath of life, the creative power of God, is breathed into man, what happened? A living soul is there put in place. Now, some people have this idea that we have a living soul. But is that what this Bible teaches? Is that what Genesis is telling us, that we have a living soul? No, it says very clearly that the elements of the earth plus breath equals a living being, I believe that's how the NIV translates it, or a living soul. In other words, it simply means that you become a living person. Now, we use this language even today. For example, if you were to work the night shift at your job and you walked into a 24-hour supermarket at two in the morning, and as you are walking in and you're pushing your car, you might think to yourself, you know, there's not a soul in sight. Now, are you talking about a bunch of disembodied spirits floating around? 
Is that what you're talking about when you're saying there's not a soul in sight? No. All you're simply saying is there's not a simple, a, a single human being, right? There's no bipeds walking around in which I can point to and say there's a soul. Now, this is the same way that the Bible uses it. It's not saying that a soul is something that you have, but it's who you are. It's when God takes the elements of the earth, when he forms us in the womb, and he breathes into us the breath of life, we become a living soul. Now, we're going to be looking at then why, how do we get this idea of a living soul? Where does this come from? Well, we're going to realize where it comes from, but we won't skip ahead just yet. Now, if it's true that the elements of the earth plus the breath of life equal a living soul, is the reverse of that true as well? Notice what Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7 says. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Talking about death very explicitly here, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and you could read the whole chapter to get a very clear understanding on death, but notice what he says. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return to who? God who gave it. In other words, at death there's two things that happen. The very dust or essence of your being returns to the earth. And your spirit or your breath returns to God. Now this is exactly the reverse of what we were reading about in Genesis chapter 2. But some people had the question, well, is spirit really an unintelligent entity? Or is it this, this, this spirit that really knows all things and returns to God and we kind of wander around heaven aimlessly? Well, we've already realized there's no consciousness in death. But we've also realized that the word spirit does not mean an intelligent force. Notice what it is. The word spirit in the Old Testament Hebrew, right, that the Bible was written in Hebrew. We have a translation which, praise the Lord, he gave it to us in English because I would be in a lot of trouble without that, right? So we realize that it came from Hebrew into English. And the word that's used for spirit in Hebrew is the, spirit, is the word ruach. In other words, it's this idea of wind or breath. It doesn't say that it's this knowledgeable force that returns to God, but it's simply the breath. And that's what we see in Genesis, right? The dust of the earth plus the breath of God equals a living soul. And in Ecclesiastes, we see the same thing, that the dust goes back to the earth and that the spirit or the breath returns to God. Now, it's important for us to see that this is clearly what the Bible is talking about. And notice that this is what Job says in Job chapter 27 and verse 3, talking about the idea of the Spirit that helps us to have a clearer understanding. Now, this is a little short lesson in Hebrew poetry, that Hebrew poetry doesn't use the same sort of poetic structure that we use in English. In other words, in structure of English poetry today, we have rhyme and we have rhythm, right? That kind of gives you the poetic feel. But in Hebrew, what they do is they use parallel ideas to bring out beauty in language, right? And it's beautiful because then it's still able to be translated to English and we get the essence of it. Now, notice the parallel structure that's shared here in Job chapter 27. All the while, my breath is what? In me, and the Spirit of God is where? In my nostrils. Now, where is your breath? 
Well, it comes out of your nose, right? You realize that when you're running, you're actually supposed to breathe out of your nose, I believe. If not, we can have Rick correct us on the next health talk. But we realize that breath happens in your nostrils. And when Job is talking about that, he just uses the same words. He says that the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. Now, what's interesting to note about this, I think uh, some pastors tend to be nerds, and so I, I did something that's a little bit nerdy. I wanted to go back and see, is this the same original word, used for the word breath and the word spirit. In other words, is he using the same word twice, or does he talk about spirit in this disembodied, intelligent, soul-type way? It's the exact same word, and it's the word ruach, which just means wind or breath. And so the idea of spirit is not this intelligent form, but it's truly just the breath of God that returns to him. Now, when we put this together, we see that a living person minus breath equals what? A corpse, right? You don't have anything. It doesn't say it's a living soul, but we realize that a living soul is a person that's dust and the breath of God equals a living soul. Now, there's several other places we can look in Scripture. If you have any more questions about this, please put your questions in the question box and we will deal with those. There's some more verses that we could reference or if you just want them afterward, let me know. But the next thing that we want to look on, moving on and trying to understand this topic thoroughly from what Scripture says is it tells us that the spirit or the breath goes, the breath of life or the power of life goes back to God, but that doesn't mean that it's this disembodied, intelligent spirit. Now, the next question that we have is looking at understanding the immortality of the soul, right? Who is it that possesses immortality? Obviously, our souls can die, right? So the question is, who is it that possesses immortality or what does it mean to have immortality? Now, notice this in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 gives us a very interesting thing. Now, what happened at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3? Do you guys remember? Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we have God creating the world, right? Genesis chapter 3, in the first few verses, we have the deception of Satan to Adam and Eve. Now, we realize that they fell in sin and that they were deceived. And after that, they were removed from the garden because of their sin. Now, notice what God says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Talking about Adam and Eve, God speaking says, And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and do what? Live forever. Now, God says, hey, we need to get these people out of the Garden of Eden because if they go over to the, the tree of life and they eat of it, then they're going to be living forever and sin is going to be immortalized. Now, we realize that it's actually the mercy of God who allowed death to happen after sin. Can you imagine the great wickedness that would be taking place on the world forever if God had allowed sin to become immortal or eternal? But God says, no, no, no I'm going to put an end to this problem. And notice what he says. He puts them out so that they will not live forever. Then my question is, do we have eternal life? of ourselves. No. The Bible doesn't teach that man has innate eternal life or an immortal soul. In other words, our eternal life is something that God longs to give to us, but it's not something that we possess on our own. Now notice this. In Job chapter 4 verse 17, talking about man, notice the word that Job uses. He says, shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Now, what is that word that Job uses to describe man? Shall mortal man. In other words, man that's able to die. 
God never in Scripture says that we have this immortal soul that continues to dwell and to live forever. Well, then the question is, is the word immortal even used in Scripture? Is there anyone who's immortal? Well, do you think there's someone who lives forever? We know there's someone who lives forever, right? Notice what the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy. I want to invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, still in that T section. If you found 1 Thessalonians last time, it would be a little bit further than that. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15. We notice that Paul describes that there's one person who possesses immortality. 1 Timothy chapter, 5, chapter 6, verse 15. And Paul speaking, he says, "...which he will manifest in his own time, he who is blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords." Who is this talking about? Obviously, Jesus or God, right? And it continues on in verse 16. "...who alone has what? Immortality." Now, if God is the only one who has immortality, can I have it as well? No. I don't have it naturally, but can God gift it? Well, we realize that God longs to give eternal life, right? That the plan of suffering and sin was never God's design, but we can clearly see that God is the only one who's immortal. Mortal means that we're subject to death, and that means real death, that we actually die when we're dead. And then he continues on and says that the only one who has immortality or who is imperishable or not touched by death is God himself. The Bible never uses the term immortal soul or immortality of the soul in describing anyone. It actually only says the only person who lives forever is God himself. Now, we realize that God does give us hope. John chapter 3, verse 16, many of us could quote this from memory, right? It says, for God so loved the world that He did what? That He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should what? Not perish, but have everlasting life. Does God want us to die? No. It was never God's plan. And if you missed night number three, I'd encourage you to get the audio on the back table that God's plan was never a plan of sin, suffering, and death. But God is a God who wanted to give us everlasting life. But let me ask you a question from this verse. If we already possessed immortality in ourselves, why would God have to send His Son to die so that He can give us eternal life? Does that make sense? In other words, the common belief is that I'm immortal in myself. I'm already going to live forever. I might live in a different life form. It might be a spirit form, either in heaven or in hell. But I'm going to continue to live. But God says, no, no, no. Death is the end. In other words, true death. You cease to exist. But I have come that they might not perish, die, but they might have everlasting life. You see, Jesus has come to give us hope. He doesn't tell us, hey, death is the end. But He tells us that those who have the Son have life. And this is the beautiful truth of the Gospel that God wants to give us life, but there's confusion about what really happens when we die. Now, it's interesting to ask, the question is, is when is this everlasting life given to man? Have you ever wondered that? If God longs to give eternal life, <clears throat> when is this eternal life given? Now, what's interesting, and I would encourage you to jot this down for the sake of time. We don't have time to go through it. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. That's 2 Timothy chapter 1, 
verses 8 through 12. And we don't have time to go through this, but we're gonna, if, I would encourage you to look at it at home because it's important and helps emphasize what we've been learning. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 12, Paul talks about that the immortality will be given to us on the day. There's a certain day when this is going to be given. And the question is, when is that day that God is going to give immortality? Well, notice the Bible continues on. We already looked at this passage briefly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. And we've already looked at this in some detail, looking at this is how God wants us to comfort one another. But notice what it says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. It says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a what? With a shout. With the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. I want to ask you a question. When do the dead in Christ receive everlasting life? Before they died or after they died? After death, right? When Jesus comes at the resurrection, Jesus comes to give everlasting life to them. If they already had everlasting life before death, they wouldn't have died, right? Notice 1 Corinthians also talks about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul describes a very similar experience here as he did in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and notice what Paul says. The question is, when will we receive everlasting life? When do we receive immortality of the soul or the human experience? Notice what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Notice what Paul says. Behold, I tell you a mystery. The mystery of death, right? We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed. Well, when is it that we're going to be changed? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Now, what passage of Scripture just told us when the last trumpet would be? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, right? The last trumpet is when Jesus is sounding it as He's raising people from the dead at the resurrection, at His second coming. He says, For the, the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on what? Immortality. So when the corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You see, God always desired to give us eternal life. But that eternal life is given at the resurrection. At the second coming of Jesus, He allows us to live with Him forever, but we don't possess it on our own. We don't go down into the grave as immortal souls that then we float off into other places as intelligent beings, but we truly rest in the grave awaiting the blessed hope of the resurrection. Can you see why to the early Christian church the resurrection was so important? Read back through John chapter 11 and you realize that the resurrection was important to Mary and Martha because that was the hope that they had of seeing their brother again. And it's the hope of the resurrection that we have that gives us knowledge that Jesus is going to give us life again. We truly see that God longs to give us life. Now, as we wrap up, there's a couple questions that people have. And one of the questions is, well, aren't there passages in Scripture that tell us that we go to heaven when we die? Well, I want to say that I can truly tell you that at reading the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, I haven't found them. I found some that could be questioned and they could be understood that way if I had the preconceived idea that when you die, you go to heaven. 
And if you have any of those questions that we don't address of those specific verses, please put them in the box and we will deal with those specifically. But one of the questions that people have is, what about the thief on the cross? Didn't Jesus tell the thief on the cross that that thief on the cross, the day that they both died, they would be in heaven together? Notice, let's look at this together. Luke chapter 23, verse 43. And Jesus said to him, talking to the thief on the cross, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, reading this, when is Jesus and the thief going to be in paradise? According to this verse and, and how we just read it. Today, right? When did Jesus die? What day was it? Friday. We realize he rested in the grave on Sabbath. And Sunday, he was raised from the dead. Did Jesus truly ascend to paradise on Friday with this thief on the cross? That's a very, if this is what Jesus is saying, then we want to be clear about Jesus' words. Now, in order to understand this, I'm a little hesitant to do this, but I think it is helpful. Don't ever allow people to hold Hebrew and Greek over your heads, okay? Let me just say that as a disclaimer. If you have the Bible in English, you have all that you need to be saved, okay? But this is something that can give us insight into this. Now, this is not cryptic. I'm not going to get into all this mystical stuff. But I just want to give you a simple observation that any of you can do who have eyeballs, okay? So notice this. Now, we had the opportunity of going to London, and there, there is the Codex Sinaiticus, which is one of the oldest manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. Now, this is a picture of that that I got off the, the British Library Museum last night, and I, I cited it. I hope they're, they're okay with that. But I, I want you to see this. This is a picture of what the text of Scripture looked like that they had written in Greek. What do you notice about this text? There's a few things that's different about ancient Greek writing that's different about our writing today. How many of you see spaces in there between words? There's no spaces. Now, Greeks, I'm really thankful that in English we use spaces because that would get really confusing. But in the Greek language, that was just natural. They didn't need a space. Now, notice there's something else you can see. There's no chapter divisions. Do you see that? It doesn't say chapter 1 of the book of Mark. There's no chapter divisions. They just wrote a letter, right? These are all letters from the apostles. We put in chapter divisions to help us understand them. That's just another thing. Now, also we can see, how many of you can spot a comma in there? Any commas, periods? colons, punctuation, hyphens, anything like that. No, no, no. There's no punctuation in the original Greek text. In other words, it's just words that people were able to understand without comment, commas, question marks, periods, things like that. And we realize that punctuation was not written by God or inspired through the Bible writers. But how did we get punctuation in our Bible today? Well, we realized when it was translated that in English we use punctuation, right? I realized I lost points in English class when I didn't use punctuation. And so they used punctuation because that's what we naturally use in English. But is the punctuation of the Bible inspired by God? No, I mean, it's just trying to help us understand the biblical text, right? Now, we don't just throw away the punctuation. We, we, we see that the Bible writers did their very best to articulate the clarity of Scripture by using the punctuation. But notice what happens here. I want to take you through a little bit of an exercise that will help you realize the importance of punctuation. Now, don't stone me when you see this, okay? Because we're going to realize that, that it's very interesting. Now, this, if we were to read it right now, it says a man... Or a woman without her man is nothing. Now I see people who don't want to make eye contact, right? Because there's no one who wants to agree to this. A woman without her man is nothing. 
Now, how could we completely change the meaning of this without changing any of the words? Simple comma. Notice this. A woman. Without her, man is nothing. Now, I see some men chuckling because I realize the reality of that statement, right? The blessing of wives. But you see that a comma can play a drastic thing in how you understand something. Let me give you another example. A man in the time of telegraphs. Remember when he had to communicate through telegraphs? I don't remember that, and I don't think any of you do either. But in the time of telegraphs, a man's wife went off to Paris. And as she was in Paris, she was going next to some of those fancy shops, and she found a beautiful coat that she just had to have. Now, this is, we're talking about 1700s, 1800s, you know, quite a long time ago. And she finds this coat, and it's $5,000. Well, she writes to her husband. She says, husband, I I found this coat. It's $5,000. I really want to get it. Can I have permission to get this coat? Well, the telegraph comes, and it gets there, and it takes a little bit of time, but she's there for a while. And the husband writes back, and he tells the telegram guy who comes, and he says, what what message do you want me to send back? He says, well, I'll, I'll just tell you the message. You can write it, okay? Tell her no, price too high, okay? So, okay, yeah, I got that. No, price too high. So she gets the telegraph, and as she reads it, she reads, no price too high. And she thinks, wow, man, my husband really does love me. $5,000 for a jacket, but, you know, it's worth it. He says, no price too high. Well, she gets back to the States, and her husband sees her wearing this beautiful $5,000 coat, and he says, what in the world are you doing? I said, don't buy that. Why did you even ask me? She said, you told me that there was no price too high. Well, you can see that a comma makes a large difference on how we understand things, right? Now, notice what this is. Why does this matter in relation to the thief on the cross in Luke chapter 23, verse 43? It says, and Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, comma, today you will be with me in paradise. What would happen if we move that comma from there to there? Would it change the meaning of what Jesus is saying? Well, let's just see, and don't call us a heretic. We're just trying to understand, right? Punctuation isn't inspired, but it says, and Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. Does that change the meaning? In other words, is Jesus telling that him himself and the thief on the cross are going to be in paradise that very day on Friday, Or is Jesus simply saying, I'm telling you today on Friday that you and I will someday be in paradise? Well, did you know that we don't just have to guess at this? We don't just have to go through some grammar lesson. But we have a question that we can ask. Did Jesus go to paradise that day? Does the Bible tell us that Jesus ascended into heaven on Friday? Notice what the Bible tells us in John chapter 20. The Gospel of John chapter 20. You'll want to see this and not miss it. John chapter 20 and verse 15. John chapter 20 and verse 15. Now this is after Jesus had died and, and they were, the women came back to the tomb on Sunday morning. And they're looking for Jesus. And notice what happens. John chapter 20 and verse 15. It says, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she supposed him to be the gardener, and she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, who's the him they're talking about? Jesus, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. In other words, why is Jesus not here? I don't, I don't get it. And the, and the woman's heartbroken, and she's crying. And she, she, she asks him, where have you put him? But notice what happens. Verse 16, 
And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. And Jesus said to her, notice these words. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to where? My Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Now what day is it that Jesus was resurrected? Sunday morning. Jesus told the thief on the cross if we had the understanding that they were both going to be in paradise that day. What day was that? Friday. But when Mary comes to Jesus, Jesus says to her, hey, I want you to understand one thing. I haven't even been to my Father yet. In other words, when Jesus died, did he go straight to heaven? No, he actually died the death and slept in the grave and awaited the resurrection that only God could supply, which he himself was God. And Jesus was resurrected from the dead on Sunday and didn't go up into heaven until Sunday. Now, is it because Jesus is a liar that he told the thief on the cross that, hey, you and I, we're going to be in heaven today? No, no, no. It's because we didn't understand that the punctuation, that Jesus was just simply telling him, hey, today, I'm telling you that you and I are going to be in paradise. You understand what Jesus is saying here. That it's very clear that the Bible doesn't come up with very different understandings of what happens when you die. Now, there's many other texts we could look at. We could look at Jesus, what he says in John chapter 14, verse 1, and he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then he says, in my Father's house there are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you, and I go to prepare a place for you. Okay, this is what Jesus is telling his disciples as he's leaving. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will do what? I will come again. Why are you coming again? Because I'm going to receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Now let me ask the question. If when we die, we go straight to heaven, why would Jesus need to come back to receive us to himself? He wouldn't. But we see that Jesus tells us that clearly he is coming. There's a second coming. And at the second coming, just as we've seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that the dead in Christ and those which are alive and remain will be caught up into heaven to meet God in the air. There's other passages of Scripture. John chapter 6. You can read through that and seeing what Jesus says about death. Specifically verse 39 and 40. How God describes death. Now, what about the apostles? Did the apostles believe that when you died, you didn't go to heaven, but you rested in the grave? Now, I know there's some of you saying, man, I thought we were getting lunch today. Well, you will, I promise, and we're just about wrapping up, but I want you to see this, because we have to allow the Bible to explain itself thoroughly, right? We've already looked at, there's not one passage of Scripture that we base a whole doctrine on. We allow the whole of the Bible to give us clear understanding. Turn with me quickly to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and notice what the disciples or the apostles say about what happens at death. Their understanding, and clearly the Bible's understanding of death. Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Acts chapter 2, verse 29, and I'm just going to read quickly here. Speaking, this is Pentecost, the sermon that Peter gives. Notice what he says in verse 29 of Acts chapter 2. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. That he is both dead and what? Buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Now you might be thinking, you know, this is interesting. David was a man after whose own heart? God's own heart. And if David is a man after God's own heart, and if God's people go to heaven immediately when they die, why is David still in the grave? 
Well, you might be thinking maybe he's ascended into heaven in another form, right? Maybe that's what's taken place. Skip down to verse 34 where they answer that question. Has David ascended into heaven in a different form? And he says, for David did not what? Ascend into the heavens. But he said, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now the question is, was David just not righteous? No, we realize that God forgave David. That, God, that David was a man after God's own heart. Why is it that he didn't ascend into heaven? Well, it's because that no one ascends into heaven until Jesus comes at the resurrection. Now you're saying, well, haven't there been a few people who have ascended into heaven? Absolutely, right? How many of you know of Enoch? Enoch walked with God and was translated, right? We have Elijah who was translated. And who's the other person that the Bible tells us went to heaven even though they had died, but after death, God took him to heaven? Who is it? Moses, right? You can read about that clearly in Scripture. Now, why would the Bible be telling us so clearly, hey, these three people went to heaven? Because everyone else didn't. God is saying, I'm letting you know that this is an exception. And notice, when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew, that who is it that comes to Jesus? Is it some different three people? than when? It, no, no, it's the same ones that the Bible told us already went to heaven. You see, God is allowing us to know he used those people as an example to let us know, hey, there is possibility of getting to heaven. I'm allowing you to see that there's a sample on this earth of experiencing the resurrection. Moses, right? Well, then the question is, where did this idea of an immortal soul come from? Why is there so much confusion even in the Christian church today? Well, we found out that there's a lot of confusion in the Christian church today about the Sabbath because there was someone who wanted to blend two things together. And that was paganism and Christianity, right? And his name, he was a man by the name of Constantine. Well, we realize that the reason why we have this weird understanding of death today to a large degree is the exact same reason. Because pagan Greek philosophy taught that the soul is immortal. Also, they taught this, the idea of dualism. In other words, when you die, you have another living spirit inside of you and it floats off to the, the afterlife and you stay in the grave. That's nowhere found in Scripture, but it's just clearly taking the pagan ideas of the time and changing that into a Christian idea. Now, we saw that happen many times. We see that the statue of Jupiter was changed into the statue of who? Peter. St. Peter in St. Peter's Basilica. And constantly there was a shifting of paganism and paganizing the Christian... No, no, no. Christianizing the pagan ideas, right? And this is what was constantly happening throughout the century. You know, there's a man by the name of John Scott who's the founder of the London Institute of Christianity. And notice what he says. It cannot, I think, be replied that it is, an impossi- that it is impossible to destroy the human beings because they are immortal. For the immortality and therefore indestructibility of the soul is a Greek and not a what? A biblical concept. You see, it's not just a strange group of people studying in Ithaca who are wondering, is this really true? But no, no, no. It's a common understanding that there's a misunderstanding that when you die, you don't go to heaven. There's not this immortal soul. There's not consciousness after death. But it's something further on. Now, this is the ending point. The question is, why does this matter in light of Revelation, right? We came here to study unlocking Revelation, unlock Revelation. And we realize that Satan is going to do everything he can to bring deception. Did you know that? I mean, right, isn't that what we're warned in Matthew chapter 24, verse 4? Take heed that no one deceives you. Again, later on in Matthew chapter 24, and verse 23, I believe it is, you know, take heed that no one deceives you. 
Revelation, coming, Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 through 9 tells us that Satan has come down to deceive the world. Deception is what Satan brings. Confusion is what he brings. And notice that why he wants to bring the confusion about death. If he can make you believe that when you don't die, you actually, or when you die, you don't actually die, but you continue on, then this idea of spiritualism can really be prominent in the world today. Now, what is spiritualism? Spiritualism is the belief that the dead communicate with the living through a medium, right? You've, you've heard of this before. I had the opportunity of living in California and in one place called Cottonwood, California, which is about 40 miles from Sedona. Now, if any of you have ever heard of Sedona, Red Rock, California, Slide Rock, all those beautiful... Arizona, forgive me, I forget where it is, and, and Arizona, what's interesting about that place is as you drive in, it says New Age Capital of the World. Now, it's really fascinating because almost every corner you have this spiritualism, medium, talking with demons and all of these different things, or talking with the dead to understand what's really happening in the afterlife. Now, we realize that the Bible tells us that these are simply nothing other than deadly delusions. That if we're not communicating with the dead, if the dead don't really have any knowledge after death and they can't communicate with us, then who are we communicating with? Well, the Bible's very clear in Deuteronomy chapter, six, chapter 18, verse 9 through 12. I would encourage you to read this. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9 through 12. And also Psalm 106, verse 28 through 37. There's a clear understanding and connection that's given. When people were going to worship the dead... The Bible tells us that they actually weren't worshiping the dead, but they were worshiping demons. In other words, if we're communicating with the dead, but the dead we can't really communicate with them, who are we communicating with? The demons. Now, why is this so interesting? Why is this so powerful? Well, from the very beginning, Satan has confused the idea of death, right? Notice the first deception that Satan ever gave was in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. And he told Eve, God said to Eve, if you do this thing, you'll die, right? And what does Satan say? You're not going to die. You're going to continue on. And we see the same deception coming in today. That in other words, you don't die. You just kind of pick up life in a new life form. It's kind of reincarnation in a different way or your spirit just leaves you. But this is not what the Bible teaches. And notice why this is so crucial. Paul talking in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of who? Talking about the Antichrist power. It's in the working of Satan. With all power, signs, and lying wonders... And with all unrighteous deception. Now, when he's describing the last days, he says there's something that's going to be happening. There's going to be signs that we see that would point us to believe that what's happening is really true. In other words, there's going to be these signs. There's going to be lying wonders with all unrighteous deception. Now, this isn't the only place we find this. Revelation chapter 16. Notice what it says in verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Now what's happening? What are these unclean spirits or spirits of demons doing? Notice what it says next verse, verse 14. For they are the spirit of what? Demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth. Do you think that Satan could use speaking with dead and mediums, and allowing people to perform signs and wonders with these deceptions of spiritualism to maybe shift how we believe in God. You know, one of our friends, he, he's actually a pastor up in Reed City, and he has a good friend who was raised as a Roman Catholic, and as a Roman Catholic, he was not raised with this understanding of the state of the dead is what we've discussed this morning. 
But as he was studying his Bible, he said, you know, I don't want to just do what I've always been taught, but I really want to believe whatever the Bible says, right? That's why we're here. If the Bible says it, I believe it. If it doesn't say it, I want nothing to do with it. And as he came, he started wrestling with Scripture, and he saw clearly that when you die, you die. And now it's fascinating because just a few months before he started studying this, his sister had passed away. And here he is, he's studying, he's learning, and he finds out all the new truths in the Bible. Well, just about two weeks after he studied this in the Bible, he's sleeping one night. And all of a sudden, he's woken up by this bright light. And he, he looks kind of through the, through the blinding brightness at who it was, and there was his sister standing there right next to him. Now, he's thinking, wait, I, I studied this in the Bible. This, this can't be true. Like, she died. What, what's going on? And the first words that she says to her brother is, hey, I know you've been studying a lot about what happens when someone dies, but don't worry what the Bible says about that. I'm here in person. Now, here he is, and he's confronted. Do you believe what you see, or do you believe what the Bible says? And all he said is, you're not my sister. And immediately she was gone. You see, could it be that Satan will be coming in the last days with signs and lying wonders through the forms of spiritualism, maybe even coming in the form of someone you loved or you lost or you respected, and if he comes, if someone, anyone comes to you, I don't care if it's myself or an angel, this is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 verse 6, then I don't care who comes, but if they tell you something different than what the Bible says, who do you believe? You don't believe the person who's lying about the Bible, you believe what the Bible says. And as we come to the end of time, there's going to be a strong deception with spiritualism and all these things happening. I sat on an airplane, three ladies sitting next to me. One says, you know, I I was just speaking to one of my dead relatives. They came back the other day. And I thought, man, this is really bizarre. I can't believe she would just openly talk about this on the plane. Three random people. They weren't together before. The person right next to her says, you know what? I had that happen to me too. Now I'm thinking, this is really odd. Two out of the three have had encounters of speaking to the dead. Now, the lady sitting by the window says, yeah, exactly. I've experienced it multiple times. Now, it's just how prevalent is it going to be when you see that Satan is coming back in the form of light to share things that will deceive people. You see, Satan knows that his time is short and he's doing all that he can to deceive the whole world. And the question is, are we going to believe what the Bible says? Are we going to believe what Jesus says? Or are we going to believe what Satan says? Now, notice this closing verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. Paul says, And it's no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into what? An angel of light. You see, no one's going to believe the devil if he just comes to them and says, well, you, you just throw away the Bible, right? No, but what if he can impersonate people? Or what if he can come looking like Jesus himself? What if he can come in all of these different things? And if we don't know Scripture and what the Bible teaches, do we have any hope? No, we need to be in our Bibles, and this is an appeal, no, I don't know how to give it any stronger, that we must be in our Bibles like never before. God is calling us to read his word because all of the world is confused, but God is saying, you are not going to be confused because I make it clear, crystal clear through his word. Now the promise is, is that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth, amen? It's not by our own grit and effort that we finally get to understand the Bible, but if we pray with a willing heart, the Lord will teach us. Jesus says, and I told you that was our closing verse, but I lied to you. This is our closing one. 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. Notice what he says. He who has the Son has what? Life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have what? Life. You see, Jesus is the only hope that we have of eternal life. We can't have hope that we have life in ourselves, that it's immortal. But we realize that only as we're in connection 
with Jesus, who is the source of all life, that we can have life ourselves. And I want to ask you, how do we connect with Jesus today? Through prayer, through the study of his word. And it's time like never before to be searching, what does God say? All this confusion is going on, but the question is, do we have the Son and do we have life? There was a man and his son who enjoyed collecting art together. It was kind of the hobby that they shared. And they enjoyed getting all these wonderful pieces by Picasso and all these other, other famous artists and getting these world-class art pieces. Well, the son and father did this for a long time together, but after a little while, the son was drafted off into the military and he went overseas. Well, after being there several months, the father got a note back from the, the, the officer there saying that his son was wounded and killed in battle because of a heroic act. He had saved the lives of other men, but he had lost his own. And the father is devastated by the loss of his son. And here the father is, and he's devastated, and he's feeling so discouraged. And a few weeks later, a man comes to his door in full dress uniform and carrying a box in his hand. And he says, sir, you don't know me from anywhere, but I want to tell you that I was serving in the army with your son. And the only reason why I'm alive today is because your son sacrificed his life for me. And the father was touched by this experience that the man would go out of his way and he says, you know, I know your son told me that you guys like art a lot and I'm not an artist and I don't claim to be, but I just, I had an opportunity a couple days before your son was killed to, to make a little sketch of him and to, to kind of paint it. I know it's rough, but I just, I just wanted to give it to you if it could be any consolation for your loss. And the father looked at it, broken hearted, tears in his eyes, and he said, you know, this, this captures the essence of my son. I love it. It's so beautiful. Thank you so much. Well, this became the most prized possession of this man. Well, a few, few years later, this man didn't have the opportunity of life anymore himself, and he passed away. And no one was given the artwork in the will. And the only thing that was told to do was to auction off all of this world-class art and to give all the money to a specific charity. Well, all people from all over the world are notified as they're wanting these precious pieces. And they come from all over. And the auctioneer stands up when the day gets ready. And, and they get ready for the auction to happen. And the, you could hear a pin drop drop in this room as they're excited about what they're getting ready to get their hands on. And the auctioneer stands up and he says, okay, I want to start off the floor by, by auctioning off this picture here. And he has the picture up there. And it's a picture that's roughly sketched of this man's son. Now you hear mumbling in the crowd, what in the world is that picture? I've never seen that before. You know, I thought we came for world-class art. This is, that's, that's a terrible drawing. And there's all this murmuring, and the auctioneer says, I want to start this off at $5,000. And there's nothing. It's silent. And someone says, why don't you just pull that off, and we'll go to the next piece. And he says, no, 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 this is the first one. We have to start with this. He says, well, someone give me $1,000. It's quiet. $500. And all of a sudden, in the back of the room, there was a man who said, I'll give you $10 for it. You see, I was the gardener, and I was very close to the family. I don't have a lot of money, but I know this picture meant so much to this father. It was the son who he loved. And he says, I'll give you $5. That's all I have. And the auctioneer says, is there anyone else? Going once, going twice, sold for $10. And the auctioneer said, this has brought us to the conclusion of our auction today. Now everyone looked around and they said, how in the world can this bring us to the conclusion? I thought there was all sorts of great pieces. And he says, well, I couldn't reveal this to you yet. But in the will it was written that whoever bought the picture of my son would get all of the rest of the artwork. You see, the Bible tells us that he who has the son has what? Life. He who has not the son of God has not life. 
My friends, the only thing that matters in this world as Jesus is coming soon, as revelation is unfolding, as the signs of the second coming are at hand, the only thing that matters is do you have the Son? And this morning, I want to ask you the question, how many of you want to say in a new way, Lord Jesus, I want the Son. I want to have an experience where I can have the Son so deeply in my heart that I'm willing to follow whatever He says. Lord, even if there's things new in Scripture, I want to follow the Son. Not what I thought was what was important before. Is this your desire this evening, this morning? Lord, by your grace, help me to follow your Son as He's revealed in your Word. If that's your desire, why don't you raise your hand with me as we close in prayer. Father in heaven, Father, you've seen our hearts, you've seen our conversation, you've seen our study. Lord, we want the Son of Jesus Christ to be in our hearts more than ever before. We realize that there's rapid deception coming upon this world, and Father, that Satan is relentless in pushing this in any form that he can, getting it in popular Christianity. And the question is today that you've given to us, are we going to follow the Son, or are we going to follow the ways of this world? Father, we want to follow the truths that are revealed, and we pray that you would give us your Spirit that would lead us into all truth. Father, as we have your Son, we know that you will keep us from deception. That as we follow the truth clearly revealed, that we won't be led astray by the things of Antichrist or Satan. But Father, that we can truly have the peace of Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.